Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. And then while we turn there, um, I'm going to go ahead and set us up for our time. And really, I'm just going to go ahead and set us up for this series. Um, so David, if you are unfamiliar with him, uh, he is a very celebrated person uh, in the Bible. He's a very celebrated person in the library of the scriptures. So much so that over a, he's uh, referenced over 60 times in the Bible. Now, to kind of give you a reference point, Abraham, who God said he would build a nation out of, the father Abraham, who had many sons, Uh is only mentioned in 14 chapters. Only mentioned in 14, which is still quite a bit, right? Like 14 chapters is nothing to sleep on. And David gets 60 So much, so much. One scholar said that uh, we have more biographical content of David than we have of any other ancient figure. Not just in the Bible, but really anywhere an ancient figure is actually written about. Now, in light of that, I do want to say, let me kind of cut in here, I do want to say that as we study David, we'll be looking at snapshots of his life and not actually doing an in-depth study uh, in these books, mostly because it'll probably take us four years to kind of go through it as a church family. Um, And right now, we're going through Matthew, so we don't really want that smoke, right? Like, we don't really want that. So, uh, back to David, though. Uh, Two times in the scriptures, uh, he gets referred to as man after God's own heart. And as we go along in the story, he will actually become a highly accomplished leader, highly accomplished leader of Israel's army. Now, Israel at the time was a very small group of people, and over time, they actually became a large group of people. And quite frankly, they became a large group of people that had quite a lot of power and a lot of sway in the world. And outside of God, that reality is based in large part because of who David is. And like Eric said earlier, David also writes some of the most cherished poetry and songs that we have from all of ancient civilization, which makes him a little bit of a category breaker, right? Like how many grizzled army vets do you know that are also highly skilled singer-songwriters? able to to write poetry that deeply expresses their thoughts and their feelings and taps into the souls of others. This is David. In spite of all of these things, though, in spite of all of these wonderful and great things, all of the ways that that God uses David for his glory, we're actually going to find out that David actually has a dark side as well. He's incredibly flawed, there's, there's a mixture of character and integrity and talent, but there's also a sin nature, just like everyone else who's ever lived. There's a mixture of godliness, and there's a mixture of brokenness. And the Bible hides none of it. 
So ultimately, what we are going to find out is that, that David's life, much like our own, is really about God and God's ability to draw people into his plan. It's about the kinds of people that God uses and how he uses them and uh, uh, how he deals with people through their victories and through their failures. And what we'll see with David is that when he is humble, when he is faithful, simply put, when he actually does what God asks of him, things go well. And not just for him, things also go well for everyone else around him. But when he strikes out on his own, well, that's when things start to fall apart. Things start to break a little bit piece by piece. In, un- in other words, and this is really important, we are not studying David because David is a hero and an example for us to necessarily follow. See, sometimes people tend to assume that all characters in the Bible, especially ones in the Old Testament, um, are great examples to follow, these grandiose examples that we need to like look to for, for all of the things. And sometimes that can be true to a degree. Uh, hear me say that. But also hear me say that there are some atrocious people in the Old Testament who God uses and works through as well, people who God blesses and people who God loves. And that brings me to this point. See, the Bible is ultimately a story about how God is the hero. Let me say that again. Ultimately, the Bible is a story about how God is the hero and how we need a true example in Jesus. And spoiler alert, sorry if this is, I'm getting ahead of myself, but Jesus does what David actually could not which is establish God's good and perfect reign and rule on planet Earth. So hear me say out of the gate that as we study through the life of David, you'll find out fairly quickly that David is probably not the same hero you will remember when you were growing up. And at the same time, there's still going to be plenty that we can actually learn from his life. You guys ready? Some of you are ready. That's okay. That's okay. All right. We'll come back to it. Uh, with all that being said, let's go ahead and kick off 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. It says this. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. All right, so let's stop right there. So this is around uh, 1000 BC, give or take, and Israel is made up of a small collection of 12 tribes. And and they were all led by leaders called judges. And these leaders would periodically deliver uh, Israel from various outside threats and establish justice in the practice of the Torah. And Samuel, who the Lord is talking to, was both a judge and a prophet. Now, a prophet was a person who uh, the Lord actually spoke through to the nation of Israel. And so Samuel is basically pulling double duty here, right? He is a judge and a prophet. He was functionally their leader and actually went on a circuit to various places helping govern the tribes. 
And after a long time of doing it, you know, he gets a little older and all of that, he decides to appoint his kids as leaders. And, well, they don't do such a good job. And so we find out in 1 Samuel 8, Israel actually asked Samuel to move on from this judge-style government and establish a monarchy like all of the other nations had. And so Samuel gets a little offended, right? He becomes, you know, in his feelings just a little bit because he feels rejected by them. So he prays to God about it and asks God, hey, like, what do you think about this? And so God tells Samuel, hey, they're actually not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting me as king in their lives. The cultural pressure uh, to have a king over them was so much that they couldn't stand it. They had to have a king. And so God tells them, or God tells Samuel, hey, go ahead and give them what they want. Now, like I said earlier, Sadly, we don't have a ton of time to actually to dive into all of this. I wish we could. But if you get a chance, please read all of this. Please read all of this. Um, yeah, so all that to say, we are picking up at the downfall of Israel's first appointed king, a guy named Saul. And he was the type of guy that everybody wanted to be like, right? He was the clear-cut favorite in Israel. He was very tall. The Bible said he stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He was charismatic, he was good-looking, he, he was a great warrior, all of that stuff. He was a number one draft pick kind of guy. Think The Rock, but maybe a little bit taller. <laughs> so when he is selected to be king, nobody's surprised, right? In fact, everybody is very excited, everybody is very elated that he is actually picked to be king. And it all starts out so great, you guys. It all starts out so great. He delivers the people from the hands of their enemies. The Spirit of God actually descends upon him early in his kingship, so much so that he starts prophesying like all of the prophets did. So in many ways, he's, he's like a judge and he's like a prophet, right? Well, eventually, that power starts getting to his head. His, the power actually corrupts his heart, and it corrupts his soul. And he becomes proud and self-willed. He uses his position as king to serve himself rather than to actually serve the people he is supposed to serve. He began to bend the laws of God to however it might serve him. And ultimately, we find that Saul has all of the tools, but he doesn't have the heart. He's got all of the talent in the world, but he has none of the character. And so the Bible says that, that God rejects Saul as king, and he tells Samuel he needs to look for a new king. And that's where we're picking up. So God says to Samuel that he should go to Jesse because I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And Samuel is like, but Lord, uh, how can I go? Because if Saul hears about this, he is going to kill me. And the Lord's like, yeah, that's fair. That's, that's, that's kind of fair. Yeah, I can see that. Um, but I got you. Don't worry. I'm gonna, I, I, just take a heifer. Just take a cow with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. That's, that's how we're going to do this. <laughs> then I will show you what to do. And you will anoint for me whom I will declare to you. 
So as you can imagine, it is not a good idea to go behind the king's back, let alone go behind the king's back when he is alive and try to anoint another king. That's a little shady, just a little bit. Um, that can get you killed real quick. So God provides cover for Samuel in the way uh, of the customary sacrifice so that he doesn't have to die at the hands of Saul. Verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord said, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. They then consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So Eliab is Jesse's firstborn son, and generally speaking, uh, the oldest son back in the day uh, is looked at as being one of the uh, uh, ones who has the most prestige and one of the ones that has the most power amongst the rest of the offspring. And it helped that Eliab actually looked kingly. He had that, you know, he had that look about him. Uh, he had that stature about him. Now, don't miss this. We're actually about to read something very important. So verse 7, it says this. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things, at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at what, church fam? The heart. Exactly, the heart. So back in uh, ancient times, phys uh, physical stature and fighting abilities were a big deal in helping decide who was going to be king or not. Uh, if you could beat up everybody in the room, well, hey, you should be king. You should be the guy, right? Um, that's just how it went. It was pretty black and white back in the day. And so Samuel, he's, you know, looking across the room, and he's saying, man, who could be our guy? Oh, he looks like somebody who could beat somebody up. <laughs> he's got the height, check, uh, okay. He's, he's got the looks, check, all right. Yeah, let, I, let's make him king. God, you, you made this so easy for me. It was very easy. And then the Lord is like, whoa, 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 slow down. I don't look at those indicators, right? I don't look at those indicators. What I am looking for is a certain kind of heart posture. That is what I am looking for, a certain kind of heart posture for Israel's next king. Now, when the Bible says heart here, it's, it's talking about way more than just your emotions and your feelings. Uh, to kind of give you a picture, the, the Bible didn't really have a category for your brain and intellectually knowing things with it. So your heart became the center for knowing and understanding things. So in the book of Proverbs, wisdom dwells in the heart. Wisdom dwells in the heart, and your heart is what you use to discern between truth and error. And the Bible also shows many instances where you can feel with your heart. So fear, distress, depression, etc. And you can also have a heart of joy or have a heart that is glad. And lastly, the heart is where you can make choices based on desire. It's, it's where your affections are centered. So the, the heart is the center of everything. It is the center of everything. And it seems, again, to reside in your heart. Hence, passages like 
Proverbs 4.23, where, it says, where the psalmist says, guard your heart because from it flows your whole life. So Samuel assumes Eliab is the guy, and God says, nope, he is not. I'm not looking for externals. I, I'm actually looking for something way deeper than what you can imagine. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab um, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, uh, or Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. So notice, uh, there is no scenario where Jesse thought that the youngest would ever be considered to be king because he was still tending the sheep. He didn't even have them come out. There was no chance that Jesse thought that maybe, just maybe, I should bring David. He was more concerned about the sheep. As sure as Samuel thought that Eliab was going to be king, that's how sure Jesse was that David was not going to be king. And when Jesse says youngest, hey, don't, don't get it twisted. He wasn't just talking about age here. My dude was basically calling David a runt. He was basically saying that David was inconsequential. That's very serious. He, he was keeping the sheep, which was the lowest job you could have back then. Essentially, this was a nobody doing the worst job that nobody wanted. Let's keep reading. So Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had, had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And then Samuel then went to Ramah. So the writers of uh, Samuel here want to tell us what's true about God and how God works. And also what's true about David. So we really need to be able to pay attention to what's included and what's left out. And you're supposed to read this story, this historical narrative of David, and think, man, this sounds very low-key for an introduction to the greatest king in the Bible. You're supposed to find it strange and, and very unimpressive. I mean, even his own father didn't think highly enough of him, right? To even be considered as a potential candidate for king. And then he gets anointed at the secret ceremony, and then he goes back to watching the sheep. It's not at all what you would anticipate. It's not how you set up a story arc in general, or at least not how you would back in the day. So, for the rest of our time, I would love to talk about two ideas that I think we can look at as takeaways for us. First, God uses unlikely people. God uses unlikely people. 
So if we look back at verse 7, it says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his, or his, uh, or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So in ancient times, the world uh, always gave the oldest son all of the power, and the most powerful men uh, got the women they found most desirable. That's just how it worked back in the day. But every place in the Bible where God works, he works in a way that reverses the world's values. This is a mega thing, especially in the Old Testament. So uh, case in point, God goes with the younger, less impressive son. So it's, it's Abel and not Cain. It's Isaac and not Ishmael. It's Jacob and not Esau. It's Moses and not Aaron. Or God goes with the, unwa- the unwanted woman, the old woman, or the barren woman. So it's, it's Sarah. It's Leah. Uh, sorry, it's Leah, not Rachel. It's Hannah. It's Tamar. God always works with the woman that nobody seems to want and the son who is forgettable because God loves to use unlikely people. We get even greater insight into that reality that God loves to use unlikely people with the coming of Jesus. Jesus was born in the middle of a nowhere town. He was raised in Nazareth, which was such a nothing place that Jesus later meets Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's first reaction to meeting Jesus is, can anything actually good come from Nazareth? Like, how, how much of a low blow can you get? In other words, this guy cannot be the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. He's not the savior of the world. He's not the right kind of person. He's he's just not the kind of person you would have if you're looking for a promised Messiah. So over and over and over again, the Bible is trying to show us that, that God doesn't think the way you and I think. He just doesn't. He just doesn't have the same categories that we have. He always, he's always been about showing off how much wiser and how much more powerful he is than everyone else. And so in the New Testament, Paul actually talks about this idea in 1 Corinthians. I believe we'll put it up on the screen. Um, it says this, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So why did God pick David? Well, it wasn't because he was strong or tall, right? Or wise or rich or powerful or any of those things. Eventually, David becomes those things, but he definitely didn't pick them because of it. God chose David to show off how wise and powerful he was. And while David eventually, again, becomes those things, it's not because of his strength. It's actually because of God's strength. 
See, when Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The same David who was looked over for most of his life up until this point was chosen by God to do extraordinary things. And it wasn't because David was extraordinary. It was because God was and is extraordinary. For followers of Jesus in the room, the beautiful news uh, of the story of David is that if you care more about how you look on the inside than you do the outside, if you're willing to do whatever God tells you to do, whatever he prompts you to do through his spirit, then you're exactly the kind of person that God loves to use. But even to that point, I think we need to sit on one very basic idea. One very basic question. Do you expect God to use you? Do you expect God to use you? Don't let that hit you as a cliche. Don't don't just dismiss this because, you know, it's a very simple question. I really want you to think about it. Matter of fact... I want you to think about it so much, I'm going to drink some water. (laughs) Do you genuinely expect God to use you to bless other people? To help other people, to actually make a difference in the world? Married people in the room, do you expect God to use you in your spouse's life? to encourage them towards the Lord, to set up systems and rhythms to help them flourish, or are you likely surprised when it happens? Do you you expect God to use you in your life group? Is that one of the reasons why you actually participate in your life group, to actually be used by God to create an environment where you push others to the Lord? You know, sometimes I hear people say, man, I'm just, I'm just not getting anything out of life group. Not getting anything out of it. Like, what's the point of life group? And to that, I would say your goal when committing to a life group is not so much that, that you're actually getting something out of it as, as much as it's, it's you're actually giving something to it. You're giving something to it. And the cool thing, the cool thing is that if everybody actually shows up with that type of goal, that goal for, for God to use them to actually give something to the group, the byproduct is that we will all get something out of it. Do you expect God to use you in your roommates' lives? Or are you just trying not to be bothered by them? I had a friend uh, named Michael Cherry. He passed away a couple of years back, and he was in um, our life group. And one of the biggest reasons he, he wanted roommates, and one of the biggest reasons he actually wanted to own a house was so that he could have roommates to live out this very idea. He intentionally went out of his way to have weekly roommate nights so that he could be used by God to impact the people that he lived with. He never lost sight of the bigger goal. And even though he passed away, 
Um, that, leg that legacy actually still lives on to this day. Because he expected God to use him to carry out his mission. <clears throat> Sorry. Didn't expect us. <laughs> Because he expected God to use him. To carry out his mission in this way. Because he was faithful in this way. God is still using that for his glory. All right, we need to move on. Um, parents, parents in the room, parents in the room, let me, here we go. All right, parents in the room, do you expect God to use you in your kid's life? Gosh, it's coming back. Um, <laughs> um, I'm very thankful for our kids' ministry and just how they teach our kids about Jesus, how they sing songs with them and over them, how they uh, teach lessons about Jesus to them, all of that, try to explain and, and nuance, you know, all the intricacies of the Bible and all of that stuff. I love how they do that. And at best, it's only for two hours. And it's only one day a week. Parents in the room, do you expect God to use you as your kid's primary disciple maker? Are we laying foundations in our lives so that we get a glimpse of who the Lord is? Are we setting up systems in our lives so that God can actually use us in our kids' lives? Or are we just waiting for someone else to do it? Do you expect God to use you? Takeaway number two, God uses unlikely processes. <laughs> I had to laugh. I had to get <laughs> Um, in our introduction to the greatest king in the nation of Israel's history, there is no celebration, there is no pomp and circumstance, there is no national ceremony. Actually, David wasn't even there for most of it. Um, he was in the pasture while the hidden you know, ceremony was taking place. And then when he actually gets called up to be anointed, he only gets called up and then sent back to the pasture. He doesn't go to the palace. He doesn't get a throne or a crown like you would think a king gets, right? There's no king training program that he gets set up with. He just goes back to doing what he was doing. He goes back to watching sheep. La-di-da, right? 
He goes back to the lowest job on the totem pole, even though he is king. Even though he's anointed king, he goes back to the lowest job on the totem pole. But listen, God uses the pasture to prepare the king. God uses the pasture to prepare the king. With, with those of you who are familiar with the story of David and Goliath, do you remember what gives David the courage and confidence to go out and fight Goliath? All the Israelite armies are terrified of Goliath, and rightly so. He's, he was a big dude. He was very tall, um, including the current king, Saul. He was terrified, and he's supposed to be this big, bad warrior. And in many ways, he was. Again, read, read all the stories. It's good. Um, but David wasn't terrified at all. 1 Samuel 17 actually gives us the reason. I think that'll be, love it, that'll be on the screen. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. It's not a great intro, but keep going. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. That's the first wrong move, but that's okay. Struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Don't let that gloss over. You see. <laughs> When it turned on me, I would have ran. <laughs> he said, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Because he has defiled, get this, because he has defiled the armies of the living God. My dude was dripping with confidence. <laughs> the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Now, come on, somebody. Say amen to that. Amen. So what gives David this confidence? What gives him the courage when everyone else is terrified? It's because of his time in the pasture. See, David's faith was cultivated in the field. The process was his preparation. Think about this. Uh, David is in the pasture watching, you know, watching the sheep, and he, and he gets called to be king. What kind of, that, that is such a great honor, right? To be called king. That's a big deal. And then he gets told, hey, David, we know you're anointed to be king, but we actually need you to go back to the sheep. We actually need you to kind of go back down and, and watch the sheep because nobody else wants to do that. And while there, I'm sure there can be, you know, a lot that happens with sheep. I'm sure they're super amazing. But if we're honest, I mean, he's got to be bored out of his mind, right? Just a little bit. I mean, just a little bit. 
He, he's probably out there with a slingshot, you know, practicing on some tree maybe. You know, there's no way God can use me, right? He's thinking that. There's no way God can use me. That was my slingshot reference. Um, there's no way that God can use me. And when he's finally tired of doing that, you know, he gets out his favorite instrument, whatever that is, and he starts working on his songwriting skills. Again, thinking, man, there's no way that God can actually use this. Now, we smile and we laugh because we know Goliath, right? Most of us know that story. Most of us know the Psalms. But you have to understand that David doesn't know any of this, right? Because it's all happening in real time. He can only see what's in front of him, and he doesn't know what he doesn't know. Here's the point. The pasture was right where God wanted him to be. See, David was learning how to follow and how to trust God in obscurity. God knew the ways in which to grow David, to grow his character, to grow his skill set. David was growing in courage and confidence and faith. There are some things, church family, there are some things that need to be learned in the background that can't be learned on the stage. Let me, let me say that again for the people in the back. There are some things that need to be learned in the background that cannot be learned on stage. And here's the thing, no one would have guessed that this would have been the method that God would accomplish things for his purpose. It's too weird. It is too weird. It's too unlikely. It doesn't make any sense. But God being God likes using what seems challenging to us to flex a little bit. God likes working through unlikely processes. And guess who our best example is? It's Jesus. Anytime a pastor asks you a question, it's always Jesus. Just always go with that. <laughs> Just say Jesus and see if you got it right. Most of the time you will. <laughs> Jesus, right? The whole life of Jesus is not what anyone would have expected. I mean, think about this for a second. God became a baby. <laughs> God became a baby, even though he was already in existence. He was born into the world that he created. And then he lived for 33 years, and he spent 30 years, 30 of them just doing a regular job. And then God dies at the hands of his creation. And then he comes back from the dead and he doesn't fix everything. And then he floats to heaven. I can hear the harp now. He floats to heaven and he's floating away and he tells his disciples to tell everyone, hey, guys, this is the plan. This is it. This is the plan. I promise. 
This is God's solution to fix all of the sin in the world. This is God's solution to fix all the brokenness in the world. This is God's solution to fix everything that has gone wrong in the world. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is not what anyone would have expected at all. It just isn't what you would expect from God. If you were writing a story right now, this, this is not it, fam. Like, think about it. This, this isn't it. How can death bring life? How can poverty bring wealth? How can restraint bring freedom? How can losing my life allow me to find it? But the reality is that God would indeed use Jesus' life of suffering on the cross to save the world and save sinners like you and like me in the most unlikely way, through a cross, through grace by faith. See, grace is not what people think of when they try to imagine how they should make themselves right by God. Case in point, every religion that people have invested in or have invented always involves some type of works-based salvation. Basically, you earn your way to God. That if you cling yourself you know, up enough, uh, you will put yourself in the right position with God. And then here comes the God of the universe. And he says, hey, you actually uh, can't do that. You, you actually can't get right with me. I hate to break the news to you, but you can't put yourself in right position for me. But I will freely, freely save you by grace, because of the work that my son has done. See, um, kings don't normally come from pastures. And saviors don't, don't normally come from crosses. But God loves to use unlikely processes. Church fam, we... We need to be very careful not to judge God based on our current circumstances. We need to be very careful because we don't always know what God is doing. But he does. And for many of us, hey, I, I know that can be a very frustrating thing to hear. But hear me also say that it can also be one of the most freeing things that you could ever hear. So the question is, is, do we actually believe that God sees us right now? Do we believe that God sees us right now? Do you believe that God sees you right where you're at? Do you believe that? See, some of us in the room might have some incredibly, incredibly undesirable situations right now. We may be in some incredibly undesirable situations right now. 
Some of us uh, feel like we are in the pasture, right? Very much similar to David. We feel like we're in the pasture right now. Nobody knows about us. Nobody cares about us. And anytime, you know, something good happens, we go back to the pasture, similar to David. Do you believe, though, that God has you there for a reason? Do you believe that that he knows what he is actually doing? See, maybe you're in a place in your life where, where you really think something, anything should be happening right now. That next big break should be happening anytime soon. And that is actually where you do not see God's hand because it hasn't happened yet. But hear me say, the the reality is that that God is at work in every bit of your situation right now. He is molding you. He is shaping you. He is working through you, cultivating your faith, cultivating your character right now. He is working to turn you into a man or a woman after his own heart. So do you believe that God sees you right now and that he actually knows what's best for you. And just in case, there's some misinterpretation here. To be clear, I'm not saying that God is working right now because something amazing is coming your way. You are not going to become the next king of Israel. In case y'all were wondering, you're not going to become the next king of Israel or, or the equivalent, right? Or the equivalent, right? Don't, don't over-identify with David. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is, is, is your life being used for God's purposes, whatever shape that might take, whatever that looks like? I'm talking about you becoming more like Jesus so that your very life itself is a ministry, that your circumstances become less relevant to your power because your life is a ministry, because you have more faith, because you have more humility and more love and more grace and more spirit, because the process is part of the preparation. See, I want you to understand that even even in this undesirable circumstance, whatever it is, I don't know everybody in the room. I wish I did. But whatever your situation is right now, if you feel like it is in an undesirable place, know this. They are not in the way of God. They're not in the way of the goal of God's purposes for your life. 
Matter of fact, they're actually probably a central part of it. See, you may not see what God is doing in your life right now, but God actually sees what he is doing. So the call is is to learn to be faithful where you are, right here and right now. See, just because the process doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean that God doesn't know what he's doing. Because the God who makes kings from unlikely people through unlikely processes will be faithful to unlikely us. So that is our introduction to David. Ben, you can actually come on up. That is our introduction to David. It's a story about David as much as it's a story about God. And as we look to study David over the coming weeks, we'll take some different looks Got to drink water. We'll take some different looks at people that God brings into his life, things that we can learn about friendship, things that we can learn about enemies, about temptation, and all sorts of practically relevant things. It's going to be really good, you guys. It's going to be so, so good. But the theme, hear me say this, the theme through all of this is that David is actually not the hero. God is. So, Let me pray. Um, We'll transition and have some time to think through some of this stuff to kind of repent and or maybe journal or sing or whatever. We'll take communion as well um, as we remember the body and the blood of Jesus broken and spilled for us. Um, Yeah, this is one of the most anointed processes that anyone can come up with. And, And it's because that nobody really came up with it. It was God who revealed it to us. So yeah, let me pray and we'll have a time to respond. Um, Yeah, Lord, um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this time to to pray um, over our church family. Lord, I pray that... um, And however you see fit, I pray that you would work through this sermon. Pray that your spirit would um, bring things to our remembrance. Maybe there was something in the sermon that that we really needed to hear. Something that really uh, pressed all of the right buttons. Lord, whatever... Um, whatever that was, Lord, um, for each of us in the room, I just pray that you would use that um, to impact our lives this week. Yeah, I think it's very easy to kind of go through life, to kind of go through the work week and not think about, you know, anything but work. And it's very easy to do that, Lord. And so I just pray that you would work. And I pray that you would use this sermon to, 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 to penetrate our hearts. Um, to remind us that, that you do indeed use unlikely people and unlikely processes. That it's all throughout your word. And that we actually get to look to Jesus. Um, in 
those moments, Lord. Yeah. Lord, continue to work. Continue to work. Um, yeah. We ask this all in your name. Amen.